a science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they I felt, felt right. I was so and I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Misha Gajewski, and this week our stories are about anxiety, something I am more than familiar with, and I'm sure you might be too. I mean, who doesn't have anxiety these days? I feel like everything in science is a bit anxiety-inducing anyways, but as a former psychology student, I've always been fascinated by what people get anxious about, how it manifests, and how people cope with it. Like, one of my best friends has been quite nervous about re-entering society after the pandemic. Something I'm sure many people can relate to. And for her, when things get overwhelming and she's about to spiral into a panic attack, she starts knitting. So you'll often just see her in random places, like a bar, just knitting away. It's one of my favorite things about her. Me, on the other hand, when I'm nervous or feeling particularly anxious, I clean my entire apartment. I'm pretty sure my downstairs neighbors want to murder me uh, because I've been vacuuming a lot lately. And then there's our storytellers who dealt with their insecurities and worries about science and their careers in a completely different way. Our first story is from Melina Giocumas. It was recorded in Winter Harbor, Maine at one of our sponsored shows at Skudik Institute in June 2022. I was standing on a rocky beach in Florida. I was wearing a wetsuit that was way too tight and it was constricting me around my neck. My skin was tacky from the salt water and my hair was tangled and brittled from the hours that I just spent in the ocean. And I was also feeling like an absolute failure. In my years as a technician, I had dreamed about this opportunity to do my own field work and to collect samples myself instead of spending hours in the lab working on samples that other people had collected. But there I was just blowing it. And I knew I had really good lab skills. I worked in a genomics lab for years and my hands were just made for pipettes, people. Um, and, but all that time, all these researchers would come in and they would drop off their samples and they had these exhilarating stories about their wildlife encounters and their travel. And they had this air of explorer about them. So I decided to apply for a PhD and I got really, really lucky. And I got into a lab that had a project available on sea stars, which you probably more commonly know as starfish. Um, we stopped calling them starfish because they're not really fish. And I always feel like I have to correct people like, oh, you know, we call them sea stars. Um, but if I'm being honest, and this probably makes me a bad biologist, I don't care at all <laughs> what people call them, you know, because like they aren't fish. And we all know that, right? They're shaped like stars and they don't have faces. <laughs> so anyway, I started out in this lab and we were I was working on this sea star project. Um, and just like a tiny bit of science for you guys, uh, sea stars are what we call keystone species. They have a disproportionately large effect on the rest of their community. Um, so when they're gone, their absence sort of ripples out across the rest of the ecosystem. And that made me really excited because I wanted to work on uh, research that could be applied to conservation. And if you want to preserve your coastlines, start with the sea stars. 
So I started out in this lab and everyone was so nice and so excited to have me there. But we were having all these lab meetings and talking about some really high level theoretical concepts, you know, like evolutionary modeling and ecological simulations. And I just sort of had no idea what anybody was talking about. So I started to have a little bit of doubt, you know, maybe I should have just stuck with my pipettes, you know, maybe that's where I'm at my best. But nobody else in the lab was really doing field work. So I figured, oh, maybe that could be my thing. And I could be like the one with the exciting stories who comes back and everyone's really jealous. So I planned some field work and I, you know, emailed some marine biologists because I'd never done this before. And I was like, well, how do you go about finding a sea star? And they said, you know, just go to the rocky beaches and flip over some rocks and they'll be there. And I was like, okay. So I rented a car and I filled it with hundreds of vials and I got permits and I bought all this new equipment. And I also, you know, asked my best friend to take two weeks off of work to come with me because I was so nervous about doing it by myself. So, you know, we ended up at our first beach in North Carolina. And that was the first time I thought, oh, well, maybe it's not as easy as just like flipping over a few rocks because we searched that beach for several hours and we found just one sea star. It was already dead and it had washed up on the beach the day before in a storm. So, you know, I was supposed to be in charge. So like we got back in the car and I was talking to my friend. And I was like, don't worry, there's better days ahead. It's a weird day. There was just a storm yesterday. It's going to be fine. But that's how I found myself two weeks later on that Florida beach with my tangled hair and my constrictive wetsuit and feeling like a failure because two weeks had gone by and dozens of beaches had been visited and we still had only found that one dead sea star on that North Carolina beach. That's actually a lie. We did have some extra samples. They were from a touch tank at an aquarium uh, that we had passed. Uh, they had collected them locally, so I begged them to let me take some of their tissue samples um, because I didn't want to go home empty-handed. And so these were tissues that I needed to sequence the DNA of these sea stars. So, you know, I sat there on this Florida beach, you know, and I was thinking, like, how could this happen? <laughs> you know, I had done all this research before I had left, and there had been this survey that was done in the 1970s of these species, and in some places, they were so abundant that they were just carpeting the seafloor, you know, up to 20 sea stars per quarter meter squared. And also, none of the marine biologists that I had emailed had warned me that this could happen. So that just left one answer, that it was me. You know, I didn't understand evolutionary modeling, and I also couldn't make it as a field biologist, so I probably just should have stuck with my pipettes. And so, you know, I was looking around at this beach and there were all these people walking around, beach combing and having a really nice day. And I remembered when beaches made me feel that way, that they brought me joy and they inspired me to pursue a career in marine biology. But right now I was feeling like I never wanted to see another beach again. And so, you know, I couldn't wait to go home, <laughs> but I also dreaded going home because I was so embarrassed and ashamed that I was going home empty-handed. But I did go home, and actually everyone was really, really nice about it. They've actually felt pretty bad for me. And after a while, I sort of felt like, okay, well, I have some no, no choice but to make this project work. So I planned more field work. And in between my other courses and stuff, I started going by myself in my car up and down the east coast of North America, looking for sea stars in places where they had been found historically and finding none. <laughs> and it was about a year that I was doing that. And so uh, one of these uh, solo field trips that I took, ooh, took was to uh, Provincetown in Cape Cod. 
Um, so Provincetown had some historical sea star records, um, and I was doing some research, and I saw that there was like a rocky jetty in Provincetown called the Provincetown Causeway that looked like it could be some potentially good sea star habitat. And so, you know, I got in my car, and six hours later, there I was in Provincetown, um, and it was a gorgeous day. You know, I get out of the car, and I put on my waders, and I have my bucket and my backpack full of sampling equipment, and I start like wading out at low tide. And people like to hike on the causeway when they are vacationing in Provincetown. So there's all these people in like their flip-flops just like walking on the jetty and like looking down at me super suspiciously. Um, and so I'm like hiking along, like shuffling in the sand and it's a beautiful day. And there are all these horseshoe crabs out that day. And they're like gliding along on the sandy seafloor and bumping into my boots. And um, I'm just sort of like daydreaming about the lobster roll I'm gonna have for dinner. Um, when out of the corner of my eye, I just see this flash of purple. And you know, my heart starts pounding and like there's like this spotlight shining down on that flash of purple. And I sort of make my way over to this big boulder and I crouch down and I crane my neck and there uh, curled up under this rock is a sea star folded up with one purple arm sticking out. And so I crouch down, I, I pry the sea star off the muscle bed that it's feasting on, and it falls off into my hand, and it's cold, and it's bumpy, and it's tube feet are like wriggling around in my palm. And I'm looking at this thing, and I'm like, I've been chasing you for a year. <laughs> and here you are, just casually sitting in my hand, and it looked so small and so fragile. And so I get really excited and I make my way over to a big flat rock and I make that into a makeshift lab bench. I whip my backpack around and I'm trying to pull a little bit of tissue from the sea star. So I pull just a couple tube feet. Don't worry, they can regenerate those really quickly. Um, but so as I'm doing this, I see another flash of purple out of the corner of my eye. And there's a sea star tucked into the crevice of my makeshift lab bench. And all in all, on that day in Provincetown, I found eight sea stars in under 10 minutes. And I drove around to other beaches in Massachusetts that weekend, and I found dozens more samples. And they weren't really that abundant, but there were a handful of sea stars on each beach. And by the end of that weekend, my whole worldview had just shifted. I realized that these animals are actually really easy to find when they're there. And so flipping over a few rocks actually wasn't bad advice. <laughs> but so it turns out these animals have been declining really significantly since that last survey from the 1970s, and nobody was really documenting it. So I decided to reshape part of my dissertation to investigate this and to quantify the change and to dig into possible, possible causes and consequences. And so three years after that beautiful day in Provincetown, I went to that same beach um, to do a survey of abundance of these sea stars. And it was a similarly beautiful day, you know, gulls overhead, sunny, but that day there were no horseshoe crabs and there were no mussels and there were definitely no sea stars. But this time I didn't doubt my abilities. I didn't think it was my fault. <laughs> Instead, I sort of just marveled at how quickly things are changing, right? These, these communities are changing, not just at the scale of one person's lifetime, but at the scale of one person's dissertation. And so this time, you know, I thought, okay, well, at least there's a field biologist here now to tell their story. And if I work hard and I don't doubt myself, then I can make a difference. Thank you. That was Melina Giacumis. 
Melina is a PhD candidate in biology at the City University of New York. She uses genomics, field surveys, and ecological modeling to study marine invertebrates in the Atlantic Ocean. Before starting her PhD, Melina was a research technician in the genomics lab of the American Museum of Natural History in New York, where she sequenced the DNA of a huge variety of species, from bacteria to whales. And if her story didn't give it away, Melina has spent lots of time poking around the tide pools of New England and hopes her research can be used for the conservation of these ecosystems. Okay, before we continue with today's episode, a couple of reminders. If you haven't seen a Story Collider show this summer yet, don't panic. You still have time. We have shows coming up in New York, Western Massachusetts, Atlanta, Chicago, and more. You can check out storycollider.org shows for more information. And if you'd like to learn more about how to tell a science story, check out storycollider.org education. We offer private workshops both online and in person for groups, and we offer public courses for individuals online as well. Find out more at storycollider.org education. And finally, if you're a fan of this podcast, and if you, like us, believe in the power these stories have to reveal the humanity behind science, to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, please consider donating to the Story Collider at storycollider.org slash donate. You can also sign up to support us on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash the Story Collider. Our Patreon supporters can receive an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as occasional bonus episodes and other gifts. We're so grateful to everyone who helps make our work possible. All right, our second story is from Nancy Buck. It was performed at this year's Math for America show. This was our fifth year we teamed up with Math for America. It's always such a special show. This year was the first one in person since the pandemic. It was held at the Gerald D. Fishbach Auditorium in New York City in May 2022. It is January 2010, and I am one semester away from getting my master's in math. I have written the first chapter of my thesis, and I'm about to give my very first talk at the joint math meetings. Now, I am no stranger to math conferences. My father is a math professor, and I was the lucky girl whose family vacations were based off of the location of math conferences. <laughs> One of my favorite is when we went to San Diego the one week a year that it rains in Southern California. <laughs> so we're going to the joint math meetings with my parents again in San Francisco, and they are brimming with pride. My father is walking around and everybody he knows, he says, Nancy's giving her first math talk. And I'm like, you don't have to tell everybody, dad. <laughs> I don't need a big crowd. It's okay, it's my first talk. I really liked my mom's version a lot more. She's the type of mom who wants to get you a prize. And that's what she calls it. We're gonna get you a prize for giving your first math talk. And so she and I go to our favorite part of the math conferences, the vendors. <laughs> so we walk in and we're walking around. 
I actually point out the MFA booth to her because I had just found out I was starting my fellowship in May with orientation. And we were looking for something special. And then we see it. This 50-year-old man surrounded in knitted climb bottle hat hats and Mobius strip scarves of all different colors. So we walk up and we start looking at them and my mom's a chatter. So she's telling this man about how I'm giving my first math talk. And he asks, what's your talk on? And I say, quadratic reciprocity over the Gaussian integers. And then it happens. He asks, what's quadratic reciprocity? And I can't speak. I, I am shaking. And tears are coming into my eyes. Because I don't know <laughs> the answer to this question. I can give a nice little proof. And I'm just standing there, frozen. And before the tears can drop, I walk away. And I'm walking past all of these vendors, tears streaming down my face. And I find this little curtain that I can go hide behind in the part of the space that they don't need. And I just sit there and I cry. Because I know I don't belong here. And everybody else is going to find out too. Because this is my nightmare. The part of the talk where you ask, are there any questions? And I'm realizing that everybody is going to find out I am not a mathematician. I don't know what I am, but it is not that. And I do not belong because I might not know the answer. My mom comes around the corner <laughs> and she's like, girl, you got to get it together. <laughs> she's like, that man feels awful back there. What's going on? <laughs> and she's like, you have been studying this for six months. You know what quadratic reciprocity is. Go tell him. And so <laughs> I stand up and I wipe my face off and... I walk back to his booth and with my blotchy red face and tears still in my eyes and a quaky voice, I do my best and I tell him what quadratic reciprocity is. And the next day, I gave my talk. And at the end, I asked, are there any questions? Thank you. Have a great day. <laughs> so... And then 
I graduated. I finished my thesis and I got my master's in math. This moment for me has defined my teaching and philosophy and my classroom because for me, my focus is math identity because there is this story in this country that you either know how to do math or you don't. And so I'll be in the classroom and my students are taking an assessment and I look over and this beautiful mathematician is holding back tears because she obviously is having trouble with a question. And I say, I know this feeling. And I walk over to her and I say, Layla, let's go out for, into the hallway for a second because the hallway is the only private place in a school. <laughs> <laughs> and so we go stand in the hallway and I say, go ahead and cry, girl. It's okay. It's okay to have this emotion because here's the thing. You are not a good mathematician in spite of this moment. You are an amazing mathematician because of this moment. Because you are struggling, which means you have not given up. You are persevering. So go. Wash your face. Take a few laps. Take a few breaths. And when you get back to your seat, there will be a new paper for you. And you're going to try again. And she did it. And this is why my dissertation is on math identity. This is why I talk about math identity to anybody. Because I am trying to convince this country that every mathematician that has ever existed and will ever exist has had a question where they did not know the answer. Thank you. That was Nancy Buck. Nancy currently teaches in a 6 to 12 school in Brooklyn. She's also a master teacher in the Math for America program. She believes that math is a beautiful and creative subject that allows people to understand the world around them. She works hard to create safe spaces so that all educators can see that both they and their students are mathematicians. The Story Collider is so grateful to Melina and Nancy for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by Aaron Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Collider, along with me, managing producer Misha Gajewski, and senior podcast editor Jen Chen, with help from education director Lily B. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including managing director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, science advisory fellow Edith Gonzalez, and operations manager Lindsay Cooper, without whom none of this would be possible.
The stories featured in today's episode were from shows produced by Devin Kodges and Nessa Greenberg and Gaster Almonte, Fola Olasanya, and Nessa Greenberg, respectively. Our theme music is by Ghost, and next week, our education director, Lily B, will be hosting a show completamente en español. Until then, thanks for listening. Thank you.